Good evening and welcome to the digital campus of Newark United Pentecostal Church once again. We're glad to have you tonight. Whether this is your first time with us or whether you are regularly joining us for these broadcasts, we're just glad you're here. If you want to know anything about us, we invite you to look at whatever we've got there on newarkupc.info. Join a small group, leave a request for prayer or for baptism. Find out about our broadcasts. You can even go back and look at those that we have done over the last year plus and uh, catch up on what we've been doing. If there's something that you've enjoyed, go back and look at it again. Tonight we are going to continue our study of saints and ain'ts. And the fact is that many times there's just a fine line between a saint and an ain't. Uh, sometimes the saint isn't well, no, he ain't quite what he ought to be. And sometimes with those that everything would scream that they're not what they should be, perform in the most saintly manner. So it's a good thing not to judge a book by its cover. Uh <clears throat> As I said, some saints are, at least occasionally, more like ain'ts, while some well-defined as ain'ts show amazing characteristics of the saints. The line sometimes becomes so thin that we can't really determine where a person stands in relation to it. My mother used to have a saying that... Uh, there is so much bad in the best of us and so much good in the worst of us that it behooves none of us to judge the rest of us. Our study tonight focuses on one who would have automatically been considered an ain't or in the ain't category but was credited by Jesus with a superlative characteristic for which the Lord was seeking. The story is found in Matthew 8, beginning with verse 5, and we will read from the New Living Translation. When Jesus returned to Capernaum, a Roman officer, the King James Version, in fact, the Greek as that it was a centurion. That's the type of Roman officer that we're talking about. The Roman officer came and pleaded with him, Lord, my young servant lies in bed, paralyzed and in terrible pain. Jesus said, I will come and heal him. But the officer said, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come into my home. Just say the word from where you are, and my servant will be healed. 
I know this because I am under the authority of my superior officers. And I have authority over my soldiers. I only need to say go, and they go. Or come, and they come. And if I say to my slaves, do this, they do it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. Turning to those who were following him, he said, I tell you the truth. I haven't seen faith like this in all Israel. And I tell you this, that many Gentiles will come from all over the world, from east and west, and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at the feast in the kingdom of heaven. But many Israelites, those for whom the kingdom was prepared will be thrown into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the Roman officer, the centurion, go back home because you believed it has happened. And the young servant was healed that same hour. Now, this amazing story is made more astonishing to Matthew's target audience of Jews because of the fact that it was a centurion whose servant was healed. Romans were despised, not only as pagan Gentiles, but also as conquerors and occupiers. These two societies clashed on nearly every level. The Roman army was the visible symbol of the subjugation of this ancient and haughty civilization. The centurions, leaders of companies of 100 soldiers, were the principal professional officers of that army. Although some men did reach this rank by Senate appointment or occasionally by the election of their peers, most were elevated after 15 or 20 years of military service. They knew the level of toughness and of training that a soldier needed to survive repeated combat. They were thus responsible for training, for enforcing discipline, and they often had a well-deserved reputation for harsh punishment. The centurion needed to be literate so they could read their orders, and along with that, be able to boost the morale of their troops. They were often selected because of their conspicuous bravery in battle. History records instances of centurions being the, the first over the wall or the first through the breach in enemy lines. They were brave and tough. And such attributes that are deemed necessary for battle are not always quickly turned off when switching to deal with civilians, particularly 
civilians of a conquered people. It could easily be understood that the centurion's faith, faith, sprang from his concept of a, a military type of regulation. He ordered men around. He was under orders of his superiors. So it was reasonable to him that someone with authority didn't have to be physically present to have his wishes or his commands carried out. We might see his request that Jesus just speak as a continuation of his reliance on military order with no admixture of real faith. That's, that would, could be our judgment as we look at him and say, that's not faith. That's just, well, he's an ain't. But there's another aspect of Roman culture that is revealed by further information in Luke's report of this same incident. I'll not go over all of the same details, but we find it in Luke 7, verses 3 through 5. It gives a little different aspect. When the officer heard about Jesus, he sent some respected Jewish elders to ask him to come and heal his slave. So they earnestly begged Jesus to help the man. If anyone deserves your help, he does, they said. For he loves the Jewish people. Huh? The centurion loves the Jews? Oh, yeah. He loves the Jewish people and even built a synagogue for us. Now, this reflects on an aspect of uh, the Roman social structure that uh, had made its way, at least in part, into Jewish society. As is often the case in the conquered nations, the, the more elite are the quickest to adopt at least portions of the ways of their subjugators. They may feel they have more to lose and can more easily rationalize a, a paradigm shift toward the viewpoint of the new rulers. What we're probably seeing in this passage is a, a form of the Roman patronage system. This social construct was built on the rich and powerful, providing for a certain group of less affluent, less influential people. This group then, in turn, provided political, numerical, and, uh, and other support for their patron. On such arrangements were built political careers and economic kingdoms. As giving such support as they could advance the political power and the monetary strength of the patron, so then the patron could grant more of the requests of his clients. Kind of a circular thing. And as long as it worked, it worked well for everybody involved. This system of favors was uh, not one where doing a favor 
compensated for a previous favor and relieved a moral or an implied debt, they invited us over for dinner, so we got to invite them over for dinner, and then we'll be square again. No, this was this was uh, rather a favor created closer ties among all the parties that were involved. Uh, you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back, and that means that later we're both going to have to scratch backs again because we're bound together now. And uh, this type of relationship, at least from the Romans' viewpoint, whether the Jewish elders realized what they were participating in or not, was uh, this is likely what was involved by the evident facts that are enumerated in, in Luke's account. Let's examine it a moment. The centurion was stationed in Capernaum, and his slave or servant was sick. The news of Jesus' arrival came to him, and rather than approach Jesus directly, because he had no ties, uh, that's the way Matthew's account seems to indicate that it happened, but uh, the centurion made an appeal for some Jewish elders to act on his behalf, to request that Jesus heal the slave. You see, he, he would assume that there was some patronage or at least some connection between the elders and Jesus. He's, these are leaders. He's a teacher. Uh, there must be something there. I'll use them to get in touch with him to plead my case. So uh, they came to Jesus to request, to make a request on the centurion's behalf to heal the slave. And these influential elders, that's the best kind of clients to have in this land, made an impassioned plea on behalf of the centurion, whom they soon revealed to be their patron. In, in what was almost a political speech, the elders touted the virtue and affection of the patron who would otherwise be identified as an oppressor. As they kept talking and promoting the centurion, they let slip yeah, that there was a financial component to their relationship. He, quote, even built a synagogue for us, end quote. So now the cat's out of the cellophane bag. This whole exercise is based on monetary considerations and restoring a slave who otherwise became, becomes worth, worse than worthless, he becomes a bother and a burden. So tit for tat, let's establish an extension of the patron-client web and rope Jesus into the scheme. It looks like the truth of the matter was just revealed, and it seems that the centurion is firmly in the camp of the money-using, power-wielding ain'ts. We've got this all figured out. But wait. 
Instead of condemning the centurion's military mindset or his string-pulling patronage, Jesus commends his faith? Sometimes what is obviously the situation on further examination is obviously not the situation. We don't know just what Jesus saw in the spirit when he dealt with this soldier. But he looked beyond the bloody battles, the parade ground and basic training, mind molding and the normal wheeling and dealing of Roman society. He saw faith, faith like none of the natural descendants of Abraham then possessed. Maybe in going through the motions of a God-fearer, he had picked up something from the scriptures. Maybe he came in contact with the spirit far different than that demonstrated by the Pharisees and the Sadducees in their eternal bickering. We would have only seen a Roman soldier, a, a heavy-handed oppressor, a political operator feathering his own nest. But Jesus saw something different. He wasn't looking at the outward appearance of the staff of authority or the ostentatious helmet of his rank. Jesus looked on his heart. Honest action or crass manipulation? Real through and through? or a shameless facade. Unless God opens my eyes, I have no hope of seeing. And if I can't see, I dare not judge. It's a dangerous thing to get our exercise just jumping to conclusions and running people down, even if it's just in our own minds. Can we pray? Dear Lord, help us to realize that we're not very good at seeing what's really going on. Your word says our own hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. If we can't know our own hearts, how could we hope to judge another's? You found most of us in places that spoke of anything but righteousness. And even with a church background, we often exuded hypocrisy, which is sometimes among the hardest of sins to acknowledge. Yet you found something there a spark you fanned into a mighty blaze. And help us be patient and accepting while you revive the spark you find in others. When we see only ashes 
Help us look through your eyes and see the glimmer in the spirit that the natural can never perceive. Help us to remain a saint, not automatically considering anyone as just an ain't. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for being with us tonight. Join us again tomorrow for another session with Newark United Pentecostal Church Digital Campus. We'll be looking for you then. God bless you and good night.